0: welcome listeners but take heed we will say whatever we need to share our knowledge thoughts and joy and even things that do annoy so join us now but be aware we have a tendency to swear we'll dial it back a little bit but frankly we don't give a shit welcome to for fox sake a harry potter book movie compare and contrast podcast I'm Ellen, and the loyal Hufflepuff to my left is Carly. Oh my god, it's the badger sound. (laughs) It is indeed. That's amazing.
1: I know. But let's fly into the Phoenix flashback. Last week, we covered the last part of Chapter 37, The Lost Prophecy, and the absolutely no corresponding film scenes. Dumbledore forgets that sharing is caring and reveals that he has been keeping a secret from Harry. Unsurprising to Harry, Dumbledore reveals that he heard the prophecy almost 16 years ago. Through a very who's-on-first moment of maybe it's not me, maybe it is me, Harry discovers that the prophecy was certainly about him. Now. The movie, as always, gives us a confusing version of the prophecy. We round out this section with another Dumbledore apology for not making Harry a prefect this year.
0: During episode 188, Dumbledore's downfall, our Potter pondering was, do you think you could pull someone out from the veil? G'day Ellen, g'day Carly, it's Jackson with my Potter pondering. Do I think that you could get someone out of the veil? No, I don't think so, I I think once you're in it, and it doesn't matter how much of your body's in it, I think you're gone. I think you're just dead, and that's it. It's the doorway between the land of the living and the land of the dead, so I think once you're through it, you're through it.
2: Hi, this is Jessica calling in my Potter pondering of if I can think someone can be pulled out from the veil. Honestly, the answer to this question depends on the rules of the veil which we don't really know. The whole thing is a huge mystery. (laughs) But let's say that the only, the dead can pass through. Then could a living hand potentially reach in and pull someone out? Would they come back to life? Would they be a ghost? Would they eventually change like what happens when you use the resurrection stone? What if a living person did walk through it? What would happen to them? Say it was a situation with Sirius and his body fell into it. If he was dead before he fell through the veil, then, like, no, I don't think he could be pulled out. But if he was only stunned and still living when he fell through it, then maybe Harry truly could have reached in and grabbed him. But if he was alive when he fell through and passing through the curtain kills you... And in that case, if Sirius wasn't dead when he happened to fall into it, he really is just the unluckiest person ever. I guess I don't really have an answer. I just have more scenarios and questions. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what everyone else has to say because I really have no idea. Jen said,
0: nope. If you could, they would have pulled back Sirius. She thinks if you pass through the veil, you die. It seems to be a place between life and the other side, so yeah, dead. No coming back from that unless you want to discuss zombies. Michaela said that she thinks if you could, it would be similar to the Resurrection Stone. The veil seems to be the bridge between the living and the dead, so even if someone was pulled from there, they would eventually turn sad and cold because they no longer belong in the land of the living. Unless they become a ghost and have unfinished business. Thank you so much for your responses. Our trivia question last week was, in which particular prophet
1: did Hermione read the article about Voldemort returning? The article about Voldemort returning is featured in the Sunday prophet.
0: Congratulations goes to Dave Garza. Yay! He also gets bonus points because not only did he give us the correct answer, Sunday prophet, He was extra specific and gave us the date as well, June 1996. He's very excited to have started up a one-week streak. Do you think he might be able to expand it?
1: You never know. For now, let's dive into the first half of Chapter 38, The Second War Begins, and an obnoxious lack of corresponding film scenes.
0: Chapter 38, The Second War Begins, Part 1. Harry, Ginny, Neville, and Luna are all sitting around Ron and Hermione's hospital beds as Hermione reads an article in The Sunday Prophet about he who must not be named return. In the article, Fudge confirms that he's back, along with a report of a mass revolt of the Dementors of Azkaban. He urges the magical community to remain vigilant, and lets them know the Ministry is publishing guides to home and personal defense to be delivered to all Wizarding Homes in the next month. The article also mentions the alarm in the community that Albus Dumbledore is newly reinstated as the headmaster at Hogwarts, and then brings up Harry, again calling him the boy who lived. Hermione looks over the top of the paper to say she knew they'd drag him into it somehow, and Ron makes a dark comment about the return to the kinder nickname, as opposed to calling him a show-off maniac. He grabs a handful of chocolate frogs and tosses them to Harry, Ginny, and Neville, before opening his own with his teeth. The brain's tentacles left deep welts on his forearms, but the copious amounts of Dr. Ubley's oblivious unction that Madame Pomfrey was applying seems to be helping. Hermione agrees that they are being much more complimentary, calling him a lone voice of truth, perceived as unbalanced but never wavered, forced to bear ridicule and slander. She trails off reading the quotes to comment on how they don't mention that they were the ones doing the ridiculing and slandering. She then winces and puts her hand to her ribs. The curse Dolohov used didn't do as much damage as it could have if he had been able to say the incantation out loud, but still caused enough damage to end with her needing to take 10 different types of potion every day. Hermione continues reading the headlines of the other articles, noting that an exclusive interview with Harry Potter is on page 9, but it isn't exclusive at all, it's just the one from the Quibbler. Luna pipes up that her daddy sold it to them for a very good price and that they're going to use the money to go to Sweden and see if they can catch a crumple horned After a moment of inner struggle, Hermione manages to say that sounds lovely and Ginny catches Harry's eye before looking away and grinning. When Hermione asks what is going on in the school, Ginny immediately shares that Flitwick removed Fred and George's swamp in about three seconds but left a tiny patch under the window that he roped off. Hermione is startled and asks why, and Ginny explains that he said it was a really good bit of magic. Through a mouthful of chocolate, Ron says he thinks that he did it as a monument to Fred and George, then tells Harry that they sent him all the frogs, so the joke shop must be doing well. Hermione looks disapproving and switches the subject back to the school, asking if everything has stopped now that Dumbledore is back. Neville answers that it has all settled and Ron figures that Filch must be happy. However, Ginny shares that he's actually miserable and lowers her voice as she says that he thought Umbridge was the best thing to happen to the school. The six kids look around at Professor Umbridge, who is lying in the bed opposite them, gazing up at the ceiling. Dumbledore had gone into the forest alone to rescue her from the centaurs and emerged without a scratch, though no one knows how. As far as they know, Umbridge hasn't uttered a single word and no one really knows what's wrong with her either. Since other than untidy hair filled with bits of leaf and twig, she seems unscathed. Hermione whispers that Madame Pomfrey says she's in shock and Ginny says it's more like she's sulking. Ron mentions that she shows signs of life if you do this and makes a clip-clopping sound with his tongue. This causes Umbridge to bolt upright and look around wildly. Madame Pomfrey looks out of her office and asks if anything is wrong. Umbridge says no and that she must have been dreaming, causing Hermione and Ginny to need to muffle their laughter. When she recovers, Hermione asks who's going to be teaching divination, And Ginny says that she thinks both Trelawney and Ferenc are going to be teaching it. Ron comments that he bets Dumbledore wishes he could have gotten rid of Trelawney for good, calling the whole subject useless. Hermione is shocked, since they now know there are real prophecies. And the turn of the conversation makes Harry's heart start to race. He hasn't told Ron, Hermione, or anyone else what the prophecy had contained. They know from Neville that the prophecy was smashed and he hasn't corrected this because he's not ready to see their expressions when he tells them that he either has to be a murderer or a victim. Ron and Hermione continue to discuss the prophecy a bit and Harry abruptly stands to leave. Ron looks disappointed as he asks where Harry is going and Harry claims that he promised he'd go see Hagrid since he just got back. Ron is grumpy that they can't go too but Hermione asks him to say hello for them and to ask about his little friend. Harry waves as he leaves the hospital wing and then walks slowly along the deserted corridor, since everyone is outside enjoying the grounds after their exams. Harry is having trouble deciding whether or not he wants company, since when he is in company, he feels like he needs to get away, but when he is alone, he wants company. He considers visiting Hagrid for real, but his thoughts are interrupted when he runs into Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle, who are emerging from the door that leads back to the Slytherin common room. Malfoy looks around for teachers, then looks back at Harry and informs him that he's dead. Harry raises his eyebrows and retorts that, you'd think he'd have stopped walking around then. This makes Malfoy look angrier than Harry has ever seen him, and threaten that he is going to pay, that he's going to make him pay for what he did to his father. Harry ramps up the sarcasm even more, saying that he's terrified because Lord Voldemort's just a warm-up act compared to those three. Then, when they all look stricken at the sound of his name, Harry mocks them for being scared. Malfoy tries to continue his threat, telling Harry to wait that he can't land his father in prison, but Harry cuts him off to say that he just did. Malfoy says that the Dementors have left Azkaban, so they will be out in no time. Harry agrees, but also points out that at least everyone knows what scumbags they are. Malfoy reaches for his wand, but Harry is too quick and has his drawn first. They are cut off by Snape, who tells him to put his wand away and attempts to take points from Gryffindor, but realizes they don't have any. As he begins to suggest what he will have to do instead, He's interrupted by Professor McGonagall, who declares that they will have to add some more. She's walking with a stick, but otherwise looks well as she enters carrying a carpet bag. Snape greets her, mentioning that she's out of St. Mungo's, and she says that she's quite as good as new, then beckons Crabbe and Goyle forward and gives them her bag and traveling cloak to take to her office. Then she awards Potter and his friends each 50 points for alerting the world of the return of you-know-who. This gives Gryffindor 250 points and Ravenclaw 50, allowing the 10 Snape wanted to take away to go back up the hourglass. After that is settled, she tells Harry and Draco they should be outside, and Harry doesn't need to be told twice. He walks across the lawn towards Hagrid's cabin, past a bunch of students. They look up at him, and some of them wave and call out to him. Harry doesn't say anything back because he prefers to continue avoiding being questioned about what happened. He knocks on Hagrid's door and initially thinks he's out, but he's just in his back garden. Hagrid invites Harry in for dandelion juice and asks him how he's feeling. Harry quickly says he's fine and asks where Hagrid has been instead. The half-giant says he was hiding in the mountains like Sirius did, then cuts himself off to look at Harry and take a long drink of his juice. Harry tells him that he looks better and Hagrid informs him that Groppy has been much better behaved since he got back, even seeming pleased that he is back. When he mentions finding Grop a lady friend, Harry can't even muster up the energy to persuade him otherwise. He's starting to want to be alone again and takes several large gulps of juice. Hagrid softly says that everyone knows he's been telling the truth and that's got to be better, but Harry just shrugs. Hagrid tries again, telling Harry that he knew Sirius and dying in battle is how he would have wanted to go. Harry angrily tells Hagrid that he didn't want to go at all and Hagrid agrees, but points out that Sirius was never one to sit at home and let other people do the fighting. As he continues to talk about Sirius, Harry jumps up and says he has to go visit Ron and Hermione in the hospital wing. Hagrid looks upset but says all right and tells Harry to take care and drop back in if he has time. Harry agrees but rushes out, again ignoring the other students as he passes them. He finds a secluded spot by the lake and sits with his thoughts, feeling like an invisible barrier is separating him from the rest of the world since he is a marked man and now he knows what that means. It doesn't make him feel any fear, It all still seems very surreal. Harry continues to sit alone until the sun goes down and he gets cold.
1: Three days before the end of term, Ron and Hermione are allowed to leave the hospital. Hermione shows signs of wanting to discuss Sirius, but Ron keeps shushing her whenever she brings him up. Harry isn't sure if he's ready to discuss his godfather or not, since it varies with his mood. The only thing he is sure of is, even as unhappy as he is, he knows he will miss Hogwarts in a few days' time. Even knowing why he must go back there doesn't make his time at Number 4 Privet Drive any easier, and he is dreading the return. The day before the end of term, Professor Umbridge attempts to sneak out of Hogwarts during dinner time, but meets Peeves along the way. The poltergeist gleefully chases her from the castle, whacking her alternatively with a walking stick and a sock full of chalk. Students begin running after her, cheering, as the heads of houses only pretend to restrain them. Professor McGonagall is even heard clearly saying that she wishes she could run, cheering after Umbridge, too, but Peeves borrowed her walking stick. On the last evening at school, nearly everyone has finished packing and are heading down to the end-of-term feast, but Harry hasn't even started. Ron tries to convince him to do it tomorrow, but Harry tells him to go on without him, saying he won't be long. Even after Ron leaves, Harry doesn't make any effort to speed his packing because he doesn't really want to be at the feast since he's worried Dumbledore might make a reference to him in his speech. He pulls some rumpled robes out of the bottom of his trunk and notices a badly wrapped package in the corner that he doesn't recognize. He grabs it and realizes what it is within seconds. Sirius had given it to him the last time he left Grimmauld Place, telling him to use it if he needed him. Harry unwraps the package and finds an old small square mirror. On the back is a note that reads, This is a two-way mirror. I've got the other. If you need to speak to me, just say my name into it. You'll appear in my mirror, and I'll be able to talk in yours. James and I used to use them when we were in separate detentions. Harry's heart begins to race as he remembers being able to see his dead parents in the mirror of Arased four years ago. He is sure he's going to be able to talk to Sirius again and looks around before raising the mirror to his face and saying his godfather's name. When nothing happens, he wipes the mirror clean and clearly says Sirius Black. Again, nothing happens and a small voice in his head tells him that Sirius didn't have the mirror on him when he went through the archway. Harry hurls the mirror back into his trunk where it shatters. He begins throwing things into his trunk on top of the broken mirror when a new idea comes to him. He takes off running out of the dormitory, barely noticing as he bounces off of walls, wondering how he had never thought of it before. He runs past the fat lady who calls to him about the feast, but Harry has no intention of going to the feast. He's looking for a ghost. He finds Sir Nicholas de Mimsey Porpington, who is on his way to the feast, and comments about not being the only one who is late. Harry ignores the somber pun and asks Nick if he can ask him something. Nearly Headless Nick plays for time by adjusting his ruff, then asks if it can wait until after the feast. Harry pleads with him and asks if they can go into the nearest classroom, and Nick sighs. Looking resigned, he claims that he can't pretend he wasn't expecting it and drifts through the wall into the classroom. Harry questions what he was expecting, and Nick explains that he meant for him to come find him since it happens sometimes when people experience a loss. Harry says he's right, and when Nick doesn't say anything, he continues, bringing up the fact that Nick is dead, but still there. He wants to know how people can come back as a ghost after they die, and when Nick still doesn't say anything, he adds on an impatient, well? Nearly Headless Nick hesitates, but does say that only wizards can come back as ghosts. Harry feels relieved since he's asking about a wizard, but then Nick mournfully informs Harry that Sirius Black won't come back. Harry is angry to hear this and questions why. Nick miserably explains that wizards can leave a pale imprint of themselves, but few will actually choose that path. When Harry tries to insist that Sirius will come back, even if it's unusual, Nick quietly tells him that he won't come back. He will have gone on. This just raises a bunch more questions about death that Nick can't answer Harry exasperatedly asks why he can't answer since he is dead and Nick has to explain that he was afraid of death and he chose the feeble imitation of life instead so he is neither here nor there and knows nothing of the secrets of death though he does believe that learned wizards study the matter in the Department of Mysteries When Harry tells him to not talk about that place, Nick simply apologizes that he couldn't be more help and excuses himself to head to the feast, leaving Harry alone and feeling like he just lost his godfather all over again.
0: So obviously, there are no movie scenes for this section. It's just the first half of the chapter, the last chapter of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix.
1: Which is great, but I really wish that we had gotten some of those movie scenes.
0: Yeah, especially this conversation with Nick. Oh, I absolutely wish John Cleese had been in this to be Nick. Right, but we'll get more to that when we get to the end of the compare and contrast section. We're going to start with the start of the chapter. Which is when Harry, Ginny, Neville, and Luna are all visiting Ron and Hermione at the hospital. Because those were the two that were like significantly injured. Ginny was healed, her broken ankle. Healed like that in a second. Good thing
1: Lockhart wasn't there.
0: Yes, then he would have removed her bones and she would be in the hospital growing the back still, probably. So you got Ron in one bed, Hermione in the other, and then the other four sitting in either chairs or on the bed. I think Ginny is sitting on the edge of Hermione's bed. Hermione is laying in her bed reading an article in The Sunday Prophet, Which was our trivia
1: question. Yep. We also kind of, sort of, a little bit got this in the movie. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago with the slight montage of Daily Prophet articles.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because it's an article about Voldemort's return. Of course, he's called He Who Must Not Be Named in the article because nobody's going to publish that shit. But you got Fudge confirming that he's back. Mention of the mass revolt of the Dementors from the ban. And both of those showed in the Daily Prophet Montage. montage thing. But he also, in this article, is urging the magical community to remain vigilant, you know, constant vigilant, taking a page out of Moody's book. And also tells them that the ministry is going to be publishing guides for defense and they're going to be delivered for free to every wizarding home.
1: I feel like this is really proactive of them. Fudge is not usually very proactive, but at this point he hasn't completely been voted
0: out, has he? Or is he... No, this is pre-vote out. Yeah, so this is really proactive for Fudge. He is usually not the type to do things like this. Probably a good thing that he is, though, because I imagine everybody is panicking at this point. The article also brings up the fact that Albus Dumbledore is the newly reinstated headmaster of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, which was also shown in the movie article montage.
1: I still don't think he left. I think he just was hiding out in his office, and that's why
0: they wouldn't let her in. I absolutely love that, and that is my headcanon now as well. The montage did mention Harry, but not in the same detail that this article does, because it brings Harry up next. He's back to being the boy who lived instead of being that show-off maniac that they were writing him out to be before. So it's sort of similar. It's definitely a nod. It kind of works out.
1: They didn't give him the mean nickname.
0: Right, which it's Ron in the book who points that out. Like, hey, you're not the show-off maniac anymore. As he's grabbing a handful of chocolate frogs that he shares with Harry, Ginny, and Neville before opening his own with his teeth.
1: I am impressed because we have bought chocolate frogs at Universal and they are big. Ron's hands must be
0: enormous. I don't know if they are actually that big in the story. They make them pretty big in the movies, too. So I don't know what
1: J.K. Rowling was going for, if maybe they're just smaller. I expected them to be like normal frog size. I would be down for that, like a poison dart frog size.
0: Yeah, but the (laughs) ones in the first movie where we first see them, they're not quite that big. They're definitely not as big as Universal makes them. Universal
1: makes chocolate toads, absolutely. They're
0: huge. And they're gross it is the chalkiest chocolate i have ever had ever it's not chocolate it's chocolate
1: yeah i didn't even eat mine because i was like this is way too much chocolate which is surprising because i do love chocolate
0: it's not good it's hard to eat it it's not good it's really dry i still ate it it's just like really weird and dry and it doesn't melt in your mouth like you would expect it to and it's not good chocolate For the amount they charge for it, you'd think that they could have a better chocolate.
1: They need some world-class chocolatiers working on that instead of just universal employees making some chocolate.
0: Yeah, it's not good. Anyway, the book mentions that, because like we said, Ron and Hermione were the two injured ones, so it brings up his injuries. Apparently those tentacles that were coming from the brains left like these really deep welts on his arms where it had grabbed him. And Madame Pomfrey was having to use a lot of Dr. Ubley's oblivious unction and it seems to be helping them fade some. So yay. That's a mouthful of medicine. Yeah, it definitely took me like four times to say it in the summary.
1: Yay for editing. I wonder if Ron has those scars for the rest of his life though.
0: From the tentacles. Depends on how well the Dr. Ubley's oblivious unction works. That's true.
1: I know that they usually use Dittany. So I'm interested what's different about this uh, oblivious unction.
0: Well, the Dittany heals wounds. But I feel like welts are different. They're marks as opposed to wounds.
1: And also usually
0: swollen when
1: they're welts. Yeah. So maybe it helps take down the swelling. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: But anyway, Hermione agrees with Ron that the article in The Prophet is now being much more complimentary to Harry, pointing out that the direct quotes from the article is that he is now known as a lone voice of truth. He was perceived as unbalanced, but never wavered, and that he was forced to bear ridicule and slander, and then she kind of stops and looks up at them and just says, I notice how they don't mention that they were the ones doing the ridiculing and slandering. Of course not. No, just leave that out. Nobody needs to know. Everybody knows already. But then at this point, she winces and puts her hand to her ribs. Oh, poor
1: Hermione. That spell must have been rough.
0: Yeah, and Dalahav, who did it, Apparently could have done more damage if he had been able to say the incantation out loud, which is interesting since nonverbal spells are supposed to be a thing and you'd think they'd be just as powerful.
1: I think maybe he just is not as well versed in them as he could be. So he's not as good with the spells when he's not saying them out loud
0: that's entirely possible. Not everybody is good at nonverbal spells. And obviously in general, wizards don't rely on them as they still say incantations out loud. And there's nothing that inherently says that murder munchers are good at magic.
1: Well, yeah, I was thinking that too, that maybe he just is not a really good wizard. I know he's very high up on the scale because we hear about him an awful lot, but maybe he's just not very good at magic in general.
0: Let's go with that. Probably. Sucks to suck. We still don't know what that spell actually was. Just that purple flames did damage enough so that Hermione is having to take ten different types of potions every day.
1: I wonder if Madame Pomfrey knows what it is because she's providing her with this medicine. She must have some idea what it was.
0: Or at least of the damage that it did to counteract that but I would imagine that each potion does a different thing and therefore sounds like a pretty destructive curse. But she's healing and she just keeps reading the headlines of the other articles pointing out that there's an exclusive interview with Harry Potter on page nine and that it's not actually exclusive because it's the same one that he gave for the quibbler. And I feel like Harry's got to be sitting there like, I didn't do an exclusive interview with the prophet, what? He gave an exclusive interview to something, another reason he's not a Ravenclaw. Yeah. I mean, that's just in my own head there. But I like to think that he's sitting there going, exclusive interview, what, for the quibbler? I mean, exclusive interview, what, for the prophet? I didn't do that. Well, you wouldn't be wrong. I bet he is sitting there thinking that. But like we said, it's from the quibbler and Luna speaks up at this moment. And this is also the first time that she's even seemed present in this whole conversation. But she speaks up to tell them that her daddy sold it to them for a very good price. And they're going to use the money to go to Sweden and try and catch a crumple horn snorkak. And this cracks me up for multiple reasons. A, it's funny because Hermione just like sits there and can't say anything and can't say anything. And finally manages to go, that sounds lovely. (laughs) And then Ginny catches Harry's eye and then they look away and grin. So that right there, super cute and amusing.
1: I really like that Luna and her dad have already planned out their summer, and they're going to find this fake creature. Well, we don't know it's fake. It might be real.
0: It might be. It's doubtful, but it might be. (laughs) The other thing about it that strikes me as funny is the fact that he did not pay a goddamn thing to write this article. Harry didn't get money. Rita Skeeter didn't get money. I love that Rita Skeeter didn't get money. And then he just turns around and sells it for a lot of money. Xenophilius is definitely a good businessman. He sounds very Slytherin to me. He is ambitious.
1: I could see the Slytherin side for sure. He is very smart and he uses really good tactics for getting what he wants. So he got that article for Harry... And he was like, I'll publish you, absolutely. And Rita Skeeter hasn't been able to write. And so Hermione was like, this is a way for you to get published with me not revealing that you're a beetle animagus, you know. So it's really interesting that he uses these tactics. And he's, I don't think Harry would have taken money, but, you know, Rita Skeeter definitely would. Oh,
0: absolutely. And let's be honest, in that situation, Hermione was the Slytherin. (laughs)
1: Hermione definitely has Slytherin qualities
0: occasionally. She definitely has those moments. But she then changes the subject, wanting to know what's going on in the school. And Ginny lets them know that Flitwick, within three seconds, got rid of Fred and George's swamp. I love him. But he left a tiny patch under the window and roped it off. And Hermione's like, why would he do that? And Ginny says that he said it was just a really good bit of magic, but Ron is pretty sure that he did it as tribute to them.
1: I think it's both. Fred and George are really good at magic. They transfigured Ron's teddy bear when he was five, so they would have been seven. They transfigured his teddy bear into a full spider. That's major magic. And actually... In the next book, when they go, there's that whole section where there's shield charms and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah.
0: They've definitely done some really cool things.
1: And they're really good at
0: magic. Which seems to be lending itself to the success of the joke shop, because they're the ones who sent all of those chocolate frogs to Ron, and if those go by universal prices, they're not cheap. But I'm your brother. Ten gallium. <laughs> <laughs> We're not there yet, Carly. Meh. Hermione doesn't seem to approve of this. Can you imagine her being aware that they have all of that intelligence and are not using it for good in her mind, I think Hermione in the back of her brain is probably thinking,
1: damn, I should have gone after a twin.
0: <laughs> I don't think so. She was too disapproving of them. And still is, apparently. So she changes the subject back to school wanting to know if everything has settled since Dumbledore's back. And Neville says yes, and Ron's like, well, Filch must be happy. And Ginny's like, no, actually, he's miserable. And then she lowers her voice because they're about to talk about somebody who is in the room, says, he thought that Pepto Mall was the best thing to happen to the school. I don't know what Filch would have been basing that on because the school fucking fell apart. But he got to do everything that he
1: wanted to do, like torture students when they got in trouble. He was going to get a letter to kick Peeves out. like He was getting the school that he wanted. But you don't have any magic, baby. You don't get to be in charge of what happens at the magic school. Yeah, and how did that
0: work out for him? Like he may have gotten some things that he wanted, but it made the school a lot worse. I wonder how hard it is for him to be at that school. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. It's got to explain a lot of his bitterness. But why would you choose to be there? Just to be part of it somehow? Or I I don't know.
1: I wonder if his parents were professors or something. And he felt comfortable at the school. Because he probably lived at the school growing up if his parents were professors. And he doesn't know anything else. Now I want a filch backstory. I'll do a filch backstory. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Filch fanfic. But anyway, like I was saying pepto is actually in the room. She's in the bed across from them, so they don't want her to hear. But she is just kind of laying there gazing up at the ceiling and doesn't fully seem with it. We learned that Dumbledore, upon return, went out into the forest all alone to rescue her from the centaurs and came back without a scratch. Was he carrying her? I would have to imagine so. That's very nice of him. She didn't appear to have a scratch either, but she did have very untidy hair that was filled with leaves and twigs. So something happened to her?
1: Following folklore of centaurs, centaurs are not the kindest creatures usually. Now I know in Harry Potter we have Ferenz who is very kind and caring to Harry, but generally in folktales, when centaurs take women off, they take them to do
0: stuff. Unconsenting stuff. Yeah. And maybe that did happen to her? I feel like she'd have been worse for the wear if it did.
1: Well, the way that she has a little bit of PTSD where Ron can make the sound of their hooves and she gets scared. The community talks about how inconsiderate the author was and how thoughtless she is at this point if she just put this in here and didn't look into the backstory of centaurs and how they actually treated their captives and stuff. Now, Pepto Mall didn't do anything good. She didn't do anything to help her case at all. I don't think anybody in the scenario deserves anything like that. And I really hope that is not what the author was intending to say happened.
0: It is a kid's book. So I don't think she was intending that at, at all. At this point, is it a kid's book? It's still considered kids, I think. Kids as in (laughs) non-adults.
1: I definitely think one, two, and three are kids' books, but I think when you get towards four, five, six, and seven, they're more young adult because it is coming of age. You're reading the book at the age Harry is, or if you're my age. You're reading the book at the age Harry was. You're reading it at 11, and you're like, oh, first year, yay you are also going up and getting into darker times with yourself and turning more into that mature content.
0: Yeah, and I am inclined to agree. I think maybe the word young adult to me just means old kid because young adult sounds better than saying old child. I think young
1: adult typically goes to like 18 to 23. That's kind of where my brain is.
0: See, I take it as, because you're saying they're growing up with Harry. Harry's 15 at this point. So I kind of took it as like young adult is like 13 to 18 and then they become actual adults.
1: Yeah. And then basing it on what the library does, it's kind of, you know, sometimes there's more mature young adult, but then there's younger young adult kind of. Yeah. It's just something concerning that is in the book and the community talks a lot
0: about. Yeah. Which is why I would like to know your thoughts on what actually happened to her because all they gave us was that she seems unscathed Madame pomfrey just thinks that she's in shock she might be and honestly considering her views on half breeds even though katie and i talked in length about the fact that centaurs are not half breeds they were not made by a human fucking a horse
2: The way Ferenz
1: reacts when Dean asks him if Hagrid bred them,
0: absolutely, no way. Yeah, so awkward there. But considering how Pepto Bitchmal feels about them and talks about them, the mere act of just being stuck in the woods with them, being their prisoner, maybe they just tied her to a tree and left her there till Dumbledore showed up.
1: I was wondering if maybe they were having like a raucous party where maybe something was going on that she was like, oh my god. Maybe they weren't doing anything to her. Maybe they were just doing things in front of her. And she was like,
0: lord. It is entirely possible that that would cause some shock. I would prefer that much
1: to the way I was thinking.
0: So, Jenny thinks that she's just sulking. Which is entirely possible as well. She has now completely failed in any position she's been put in at the school, managed to get captured by things that she considers to be beneath her, and got outsmarted by children.
1: Well, maybe we should stop considering that things are beneath us, such as children, wizards, and other magical creatures that have brains and are extremely intelligent.
0: Yeah. I don't think she actually learned that lesson, but maybe.
1: I wonder if they had made a clip-clopping noise when they went into the ministry,
0: if that would have helped them get what they wanted. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of the clip-clopping sound, this is the point where Ron mentions that. He says that she shows signs of life if you make a clip-clopping sound and then demonstrates going (laughs) with his tongue and Pepto-Bitchmall just sits bolt upright and looks around wildly. So yeah, like you said, that is definitely kind of a sign of PTSD. Not kind of, that is a sign of PTSD. Hopefully she gets herself some therapy. No, because there's no <laughs> therapy in the wizarding world. <laughs> Madame Pomfrey sees her looking around, peeks her head out of her office, and is like, uh, is something wrong? And Pepto Maul is there somewhat because she answers she says no and thinks that she must have just been dreaming so she probably is having nightmares about whatever it is that did happen to her
1: I guess I'm just so much of a Hufflepuff that I do feel bad for Pepto Mall in this scenario it just makes me feel bad because I can imagine going through something traumatic and then having to be constantly reminded of it I wonder if Madame Pomfrey is giving her that solution The potion that makes you sleep without dreams.
0: Maybe. I kind of feel bad for her too because like you were saying, if this was something really horribly traumatizing and not actually just her sulking like Ginny thinks, then that is really awful and there is not a person in the world who deserves that.
1: She also is never going to tell anybody what happened, so... But she should tell a therapist. I'm going to start a campaign for magical therapists.
0: Hermione and Ginny are definitely not Hufflepuffs. They have no sympathy for this. They find this whole thing hilarious and basically stuff Hermione's bedsheets into their mouths to muffle their laughter.
1: I also think they're 15. Well, Hermione's 16. Ginny's 15. And they're witnessing a teacher that was horrible to them go through something that they feel like she made everybody go
0: through this school year, so...
1: They're just being very teenagery.
0: Oh, yeah. They're definitely being young adults here. <laughs> the episode's called Young Adult. <laughs> anyway, once they recover from their cruel little laughter there, kind of deserved laughter, but whatever. Depends on your perspective. Hermione changes the subject to want to know who is going to be teaching divination now since they have Trelawney and Ferenc. And it's not like Ferenc can go back to the forest. So what are they going to do? And Jenny says that she thinks both Trelawney and Ferenz are going to teach it. Like they'll alternate years or something. And Ron speaks up to say something about thinking that Dumbledore probably wished he could have gotten rid of Trelawney for good. And caused the whole subject useless. And this is so funny to me because Hermione is shocked. She's just like, how can you say that now that we know there are real prophecies? And I'm like, Hermione, you walked out of that classroom. Are you regretting that now? Do you think maybe you should have stuck with divination now that you know there's real prophecies?
1: I feel like divination is like a class that you need to be pre-tested for. You can't just tell the future. I don't think it works like that. I think that you need to be like a pre-test. Like, do you have some semblance of the sight. You
0: could still learn about the history of it.
1: I think the way forens teaches it, based on the planets and stuff like that, that's one way to teach it. But maybe have Trelawney actually teach seers. Test them to see if they're a seer before.
0: I don't know if there is a way to test them, though, because half of the predictions that she makes are just BS. I wonder what triggers her... Real in her
1: eye? (laughs) Yeah. Though some of the things she makes not during those moments, those are true. I think that Sybil is a seer. She's just not really good at interpreting it. She sometimes gets things wrong, like when she did say that Harry was born in midwinter. To me, that's her reading that piece of Voldemort that's inside of him.
0: And that is entirely possible. But I think some of it is also manipulative. Like when she said that Neville was going to break a cup and asked him to grab a blue one instead of a pink one next time. And then he ends up breaking both of them because she planted it in his head. She made him nervous. Would he have broken that cup if she hadn't said that first?
1: Probably not. But that's like parlor tricks, right? To yeah. To get the kids to think that you actually know what you're doing.
0: It is definitely an interesting subject. I just kind of wonder if Hermione now regrets leaving it behind. I just was
1: thinking Hermione maybe was thinking, I don't want to do it because I'm not a seer.
0: That could be it too. Just a little more respectful than when she left in third year. It's been a couple of years. Things have changed. Anyway, the turn of the conversation to the concept of prophecies kind of sets Harry off. His heart starts pounding. He hasn't told anyone that he knows what was in the prophecy. All they know is from Neville that it broke. So they all think that they have no idea what was in it, just that it existed. And Harry's sitting there like, I don't really want to see the looks on your faces when I tell you that I either have to murder someone or be murdered by them.
1: That's fair. You don't ever want to have to tell your friend something bad news-esque like that.
0: So guess what, Guys. Either I have to kill Voldemort or he's going to kill me. Have a good summer.
1: (laughs) Bye, friends.
0: (laughs) It's about how that goes. Ron and Hermione just full-on pick up the conversation about prophecies. And Harry's like, peace out, yo. I am not mentally prepared for this. And gets up to leave, which upsets Ron. He's like, where are you going? And Harry says, I promised that would go see Hagrid. He just got back. I feel
1: like. They could have taken a moment and been like, oh, this is making Harry uncomfortable. Maybe we should stop talking about it.
0: You'd think that they might pay attention to that, but I think they're just so caught up in the conversation. And maybe afterwards, after Harry left, they were like, oh, he probably isn't ready yet. But in that moment, they're just caught up in it. So he says he's going to go see Hagrid. Ron's kind of grumpy because he's still stuck in the hospital wing and can't go too. Hermione says, just say hello and ask about his little friend for us. And Harry just kind of waves as he's leaving to let him know that he heard what their request was and starts making his way down the corridor, which is pretty deserted since everybody's outside. They're done with school. They just have this free time before they head back home. And it's nice weather because it's June. So nobody is really inside the castle. And Harry is just wallowing in his aloneness which goes back and forth between something he wants and something he doesn't because there are times when he's like I can't be alone with my thoughts I need to surround myself with people and distractions and then there are other times like just now then he's with people and a topic comes up that he doesn't want to talk about and he's like I need to be alone with my thoughts
1: I feel like he just needs to be in a room of people who don't know
0: what's going on And that might help, but that also could feel really weird and surreal. That's true. Like how he mentioned when he was in Dumbledore's office that he could hear everybody walking about the castle first thing in the morning and laughing and going to get food, and he's just like, none of these people know or care that Sirius is gone. It's just weird if you're in a room where nobody has any idea what you're dealing with. I mean, I guess that's kind of like life nobody really knows what's going on with somebody else.
1: And that's why you should always be kind to people, because you never know what's going on.
0: Exactly, Hufflepuff. He actually does consider visiting Hagrid for realsies, but doesn't get to that point before he's interrupted by the arrival of Nazi Von Douchebag II and his two cronies. They're coming out of the Slytherin common room. And Nazi Von Douchebag II immediately looks around for teachers because he's going to do something he's not supposed to do, starting off with telling Harry that he's dead.
1: Truly, in this moment, I don't like Nazi Von Douchebag II. I don't. However, Harry got his dad thrown in jail. Now I know. They made the wrong choice. They chose the wrong side. I definitely get that. But his dad's in jail. That's like a person he looks up to. And his dad is like living in this terrible place where he's going to be essentially tortured because that's what Azkaban is. They get tortured by the Dementors that are no longer part of the ban. It says they're no longer in the control of the ministry, which makes me intrigued. That means they're just going around doing whatever the
0: fuck they want. I took it as they left patrolling the ban.
1: Well, I'm sure, but I bet some are still there, especially if there's new people coming. Oh, yeah, definitely tasty little
0: snacks. Lucius is a tasty little snack. <laughs> Luscious. Douchous. Anyway, I kind of agree with what you're saying. Like, that does really suck for Draco. However, Harry did not land his dad in the ban. His dad landed himself in the ban. It is our choices. I understand. Yeah. Nazi Von Douchebag II tells Harry that he's dead, and Harry has the best sassy Harry response of, I think, all of the responses in the book. Like, this section is just mwah for Harry's sarcasm because he just raises his eyebrows and says, huh, you'd think I'd have stopped walking around then. So sassy, sir. Oh, my God, I love it. Naturally, this makes Malfoy even angrier, which is hilarious and understandable because that's exactly how you piss somebody off that's trying to threaten you. Just give him some sass back. But Malfoy's pissed and he says, you're going to pay for what you did to my father. And Harry somehow turns the sass up even higher, responding with, Oh, yeah, I'm terrified now because Lord Voldemort's just got to be a warm-up act compared to you three. My goodness, Harry. And there's just so many things in there that flat out being like, Dude, I just faced the world's most evil dark wizard and survived.
1: I am really curious why Draco thinks at this point, like, he could take Harry on. He has literally faced Voldemort like four or five times before now, and he's won. So you little white boy
0: here, just, no, you're not going to get it. It You think I'm scared of you? No. Especially since the mere act of saying his name causes those three to look terrified. And Harry is like, oh, what? You scared of your dad's mate?" Nazi Von Douchebag II makes an attempt to continue his threat, telling Harry, just wait, you can't land my father in prison. And Harry's just like, I thought I just did. Listen, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) And technically, you did not because he landed himself in prison, but also, boom.
1: (laughs) To be fair, Harry is the reason they got caught, so. So,
0: yeah. Malfoy points out that the Dementors have left the band, so they're going to be out in no time. And Harry's just like, yeah, maybe, but now everyone also knows what scumbags they are, so have fun out in the real world, Lucius. Harry is 100% not wrong. Right? I love it so much. It's just so great. He's just done taking shit from these three.
1: He has really fucked them over this school year by claiming their dads were in the graveyard, with Voldemort when he came back. Which they were. They were. But that put it out there for everybody to see and read. And if they chose to believe Harry,
0: then mm-hmm. they already knew what scumbags they were. And now there's proof. Hee <laughs> hee <laughs> Correct. In response to that, though, Nazi Von the II just reaches for his wand. And I don't know if Harry is just really that much faster than him or if he was goading him on on purpose in the hopes that this would happen. But he easily gets his wand drawn first and is ready to go. But Snape shows up, tells him to put his wand away and tries to take 10 points from Gryffindor before <laughs> looking over at the hourglasses because they apparently they're standing right by them and saying, oh, you don't have any because the Inquisitorial squad went mad and took all of the points away from all of the other houses that weren't Slytherin. that's fair right so Gryffindor is completely pointless even though it does have a point it just doesn't have any points and Snape starts to say what he's going to have to do to punish Harry instead but before he gets really into that Professor McGonagall shows up and she's like what we'll have to do instead is add some more I feel like Harry would have ramped up his sassiness and been like come at me bro right oh He's not happy with Snape still, I'm sure. So Professor McGonagall's there now. She's out of St. Mungo's, looking a lot better though. She is walking with a cane. She has her cloak and her carpet bag from her travels. I imagine from Hogwarts to St. Mungo's and back. I don't know if they gave her some time off at home or something, or if she even has a home outside of Hogwarts.
1: School? I'm confused. I mean, Snape
0: (laughs) has a home outside of Hogwarts. Yeah,
1: but that was his family. Well, she might have her
0: family house. But anyway, she beckons Crabbe and Goyle forward and gives them her bag and cloak and is like, take these to my office and just like shoves them at him and gets rid of them. And And then she gives Potter and his friends who all went with him 50 points each for alerting the world of the return of you know who. I don't know why she said, you know who. She's still hesitant to say it at this point, I think. I could have sworn she'd said it before, but maybe not yet.
1: She says it in seven and it's a big deal.
0: Yeah, maybe. Say his name. But it's just so funny that she's just like, oh, Gryffindor doesn't have any points? We'll have to give them points. And that's normally such a Dumbledore thing that I love that they had McGonagall do it this time. Dumbledore comes running down the stairs. What? (laughs) He's just possessing her and saying it through her so it doesn't look suspicious. But so we've got Harry, Ron, Hermione, Neville, Ginny. So that's five times 50, 250 points for Gryffindor. And then she remembers Luna was there as well. So Ravenclaw gets 50 points. And then she turns to Snape and says, so what you said you wanted to take 10 points away from Gryffindor? Go for it. So now those 10 rubies go back up the hourglass and they're still left with 240. Respectable amounts. Malfoy takes
1: away points from Hermione for being a mudblood. If I was McGonagall, I would be like, I want to take points away from you guys for being Nazi von douchebags. Yes,
0: absolutely. I wonder if they were allowed to give points to themselves or just take points. Like, how many points does Slytherin have right now? Are they out of emeralds? Or are they just all in the bottom?
1: That would make me like hysterically mad.
0: I wonder <laughs> yeah. I imagine that they attacked everybody and nobody has points at this point. Well, everybody hates Hufflepuff.
1: Poor and Hufflepuffs. In the books, everybody hates Hufflepuffs. They're always referred to as duffers, but we know Hufflepuffs are the best. Yes.
0: <laughs> I do love Hufflepuffs. It's my secondary house, but I am a Gryffindor. Anyway, all that's settled, and she tells Harry and Nazi Von the second that they should be outside, and Harry's just like, peace out, yo. He doesn't need to be told twice. He's out of there.
1: The entire imagery of that whole conversation makes me so happy. Just McGonagall coming in and being like, you foolish boys, take my things. Yes. And I'm giving them points and Draco, shut up. Like that whole thing is just, that imagery is perfect and I love it.
0: And obviously the movie couldn't include this since they never even had her get injured to begin with. I say injured like she wasn't completely unfairly attacked. Correct. Correct. So Harry decides that he is actually going to go to Hagrid's cabin. He walks past all of the students that are outside, and of course they're all staring at him because that's what they do. Some do actually wave at him or even call out to him, and Harry just ignores them all because he does not want to stop and get questioned by anybody. He makes it to Hagrid's hut and knocks on the door, and there's no answer at first, so he's like debating about whether or not he's going to leave. But then it turns out Hagrid was just around in his back garden and he and Fang come around the side of the house and Hagrid invites him in for some dandelion juice, which I didn't know that was a thing. I'm really glad that's not something they decided to sell at Harry Potter World at Universal because, ugh. Uh,
1: Okay. Dandelion juice on its own is disgusting. However, I used to work at a juice place and we would juice dandelions with lemons And that little kick of lemon, it's very refreshing. It kind of tastes like grass, not going to lie. But dandelion on its own is really gross, so I really hope that he at least gave him some lemon to put with it.
0: It is very good for your health. Yeah, maybe that's it. I don't know. It sounds yuck to me. Hagrid also asks him how he's feeling, and Harry's just like, whatever, I'm fine. Where have you been? Tell me about that. Distract. Deflect. Deflect. Distract. Deflect. Go on. So Hagrid explains that he was hiding in the mountains, starts to say that it was just like how Sirius did when he was on the run, and then realizes that is not the thing to bring up in front of Harry right now, and just, like, takes a really long, awkward sip of his juice.
1: At least Hagrid's a little more respectful than Ron and Hermione, and he picked it up a lot quicker.
0: Yeah, he definitely did. Harry just keeps the subject off of that and mentions that he looks better. A lot of those cuts and bruises are finally healing. And Hagrid tells him that Groppy has been so much better behaved since he got back and even seemed pleased, which makes sense because we know that when they were in the forest, he was like, Grop what, Hagrid? And he was just very awe. so he's definitely happy his brother's home. And then he mentions he was thinking of finding Grop a lady friend, which, problematic. But are you just going to go kidnap a female giant and somehow managed to drag her back to the forest, too? Are you maybe considering just doing, like, a wizard? Maybe Madame Maxime has a sister. Maybe. I don't know. So problematic. However, Harry doesn't even have the energy to try and persuade him against this idea. He's just like, in his brain, that is a terrible idea, but I can't deal with this right now. And he just, like, takes more drinks of his juice, and that is it. So Hagrid tries to bring up the thing that he probably shouldn't bring up that Harry definitely doesn't want to hear about because he's starting to get that itch of being alone again. But Hagrid does it, says, everyone knows you've been telling the truth now, and that's got to be better. Harry just kind of shrugs. He doesn't really have anything to say to that. So Hagrid tries again, trying to comfort Harry, letting him know that he knew Sirius longer than Harry did, and... Dying in battle is how he would have wanted to go.
1: That just makes me so sad. I know that Hagrid's trying really hard to be helpful. Harry doesn't really want to hear that. And I know that he knows Harry doesn't want to hear that. But I feel like he's trying to be like, but really, I knew him longer than you. And this is really what he would have wanted. But that's never what anybody wants
0: to hear. No, it's definitely a tough thing to cross. And Harry is not in the place to hear it. He just gets angry. And he's just like, he didn't want to die at all. Which Hagrid does agree with, but then reminds Harry that Sirius was never one to sit at home and let other people do the fighting. At this point, Harry just jumps up and says he has to go visit Ron and Hermione in the hospital wing. So, hey, at least he has that built-in excuse. Hagrid's bummed out, but seems to understand that he needs to let him go and just tells him to take care and drop back in if he can. Which Harry agrees, but rushes out. Past all of those students that he continues to ignore and just finds himself a spot all alone right by the lake where he's not going to be easily noticed by other people and can be alone with his thoughts. He feels like there's some sort of invisible barrier that separates him from the rest of the world. And I think that separating himself physically from the rest of the world is actually enhancing that. But... It's just tough for him right now because he's felt like a marked man his whole life, but now he actually knows what that means. And he's not really afraid of it, but like I said, it's very surreal. It's just strange. And he just sits there with his thoughts until the sun goes down and he starts to get cold.
1: I think Harry really just needs somebody to sit with him and not talk. That's the kind of company he needs. He just needs a presence of a person, but not necessarily to be talking about it
0: even if it wasn't sitting in silence it could be talking about trivial things quidditch something there's three days left to their term when ron and hermione are finally able to leave the hospital wing and hermione not understanding that harry probably needs somebody to sit in silence with keeps trying to discuss serious with him and ron at least seems to get it enough and shushes her whenever she tries Harry isn't sure if he's ready to talk about his dog father or not because there are moments when he wants to, and then there are other moments where he doesn't. It kind of swishes with his mood. All he knows for sure at this point is that even though he's miserable right now, he knows he's just going to be more miserable when he makes it back to Privet Drive, so he's dreading that. Then the day before the end of term, Pepto Bitchmall is allowed to leave. And she tries to sneak out of Hogwarts while everyone's at dinner. But this is completely thwarted by Peeves into what is quite possibly my absolute favorite moment from the entire series. Both for randomness and just genuine amazingness that is Professor McGonagall and the kookiness that is Peeves. And the very fact that this did not make it into the movie is probably my lifelong sorrow. So, Peeves chases her from the castle, whacking her alternately with a walking stick and a sock full of chalk. I want to know where he got the sock. I'm sure he just collected the chalk from the classrooms, but he took the time to fill a sock with chalk. He is a
1: poltergeist. Poltergeists steal things frequently, so he's stealing things from the laundry.
0: I love it so much. And then because of her reaction to this, it alerts the students that something's going down, and they start chasing after her, cheering, while all of the heads of houses are like, no, stop, don't. It's like the... Willy Wonka thing. No, stop,
1: uh, no. don't. I'm going to say this is in the movie. It is not in a Harry Potter movie, but it is in Matilda when they chase Trench Bull out of the school. Yes, I wanted
0: that moment in this. It definitely rings similar vibes. Yeah, and then my absolute favorite part is Professor McGonagall doing the no, stop, don't, and then sitting back down, clearly saying... I wish that I could have run cheering after her, too, but Peeves borrowed my walking stick. She helped. I like to believe that she fucking handed him the walking stick. Get her, Peeves. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Then on the very last evening of school, everybody's getting ready to go down to the end-of-term feast, and they're all packed. Harry has not even started. So he sends Ron down without him and he's just like, I'll meet you there later. I won't be long. Ron leaves and Harry just continues not packing, essentially. He's kind of like half-heartedly pulling things out of his trunk and trying to get organized. But really, he doesn't want to go to the feast. He's afraid that Dumbledore is going to make reference to him in his speech like he did last year. And just doesn't want to deal with it. So... He's just sort of like whatever, just not really packing, but not not packing. And in the process of taking things out of his trunk, he notices a poorly wrapped package at the bottom in the corner. Doesn't recognize it right away, but when he picks it up, he then remembers what it is. It is the most frustrating plot device. It's essentially a MacGuffin in this book because it served zero purpose. For this entire story, and had it been used, it would have changed the story, though it does become more significant later on. Just not yet. Right now, all it does is make us angry, because he now remembers what it is when he picks up the package. Sirius gave it to him the last time he was at Grimmauld Place, telling him to use it if he needed it, and Harry said, I'm not going to use this and have you do something stupid that you shouldn't be doing, and he just puts it in his trunk and completely forgets about it. Would have changed the story if he had just remembered that and opened it. Because he opens it now and he finds this old small square mirror. It's very dirty. The back of it has a note that says, this is a two-way mirror. I've got the other. If you need to speak to me, just say my name into it. You'll appear in my mirror and I'll be able to talk in yours. James and I used to use them when we were in separate detentions.
1: And my heart breaks so much at this
0: point. It's heartbreaking, yes, and infuriating. Because if he had just remembered that and used that to try and reach out to Sirius instead of Umbridge's fire. Uh, it's useless. He thinks it's going to be useful right now because he remembers seeing his dead parents in the mirror of Arased, So he thinks maybe he'll get to see dead dog father in this mirror. He holds it up to his face, sees his reflection in the dirty glass, and says, Sirius Black. When nothing happens, he tries wiping the mirror clean, repeats the name, and nothing continues to happen. Not being Ravenclaw, his theory here is that the reason why it's not working is because Sirius didn't have the mirror with him when he went through the archway, but I somehow don't think it was going to work then either.
1: That'd be fucking dope.
0: Right? I wonder if then, in some sort of afterlife, it could be passed around and other people could use it to talk to their loved ones. Oh, I'm sad. Right? Harry is not sad. Harry is angry. And he just throws the mirror back into his trunk where it breaks. And he doesn't bother cleaning it up or anything. He just starts throwing more things on top of it. It's
1: going to bite you in the seventh book, Harry.
0: Oh, yeah. Literally. Literally. As literal as something cutting you is biting, but yes. While he's doing this, he has another lumos pop up over his head. <laughs> and he just takes off running out of the dormitory so fast. He's like bouncing off of walls and doesn't even care. He's just, he has a goal. He's going to get there. He's not even thinking about it. He runs past the fat lady who's like, uh, you're late to the feast. And he it just ignores her because... He's not going to the feast. He's trying to find himself a ghost. He manages to find nearly headless Nick, also properly named Sir Nicholas D. Mimsy Porpington, who is on his way to the feast and makes the joke a pun about not being the only one who is late in a manner of speaking. (laughs) It makes me so happy. Harry just ignores it. Asks Nick if he can ask him something. I love that question. Hey, can I ask you something? You just did. I'm pretty sure that he did that to Dumbledore, too. And Dumbledore said, you just did,
1: but you can ask another.
0: Yep. Nearly Headless Nick is like, "Uh, can this wait until after the feast? But Harry is adamant that it needs to happen now. And he asks if they can go into the nearest classroom. So he holds the door open for him to the classroom. And Nick just floats through the wall and i just the little touches of that like i would have loved to see that and i really would have loved to have this conversation because it would clarify a few things not to mention then we'd get more john cleese so nick is actually not surprised that harry's come to find him it's not the first time that people who have experienced a loss had come looking for him or another ghost and harry's just like yeah you're right that's exactly why i'm here You're dead, but still here, so how can people come back as ghosts after they die? And then Nick doesn't answer right away, so Harry's just like, well. I kind
1: of wonder if Nick is embarrassed at his choice because of how he responds.
0: I don't even think that's a kind of wonder. I'm inclined to say that's what it is.
1: He's embarrassed that he chose the, quote, easy way out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He hesitates before responding and then says that only wizards can come back as ghosts. And Harry's just like, oh, yeah, well, I'm totally talking about a wizard. But Nick's just like, no, Harry, Sirius Black is not going to come back. He knows exactly why he's there. Harry's upset. and He's like, why? It doesn't matter if it's unusual. He will come back. And Nick tells him that he's not going to because it's just a pale imprint and very few actually choose that, he will have moved on. I also
1: think that Harry is wrong. I think Sirius did want to die.
0: I am inclined to agree with you there as well. He had so much loss. I don't think he wanted to leave Harry.
1: No, but I think the prospect of seeing James and Lily again, I don't think he would have chose to be a ghost.
0: I also think that, unfortunately, we have hit the point with Harry where... He has so much responsibility in this story and his future that he doesn't get to be a kid anymore. And having adults that are responsible for him help him stay a kid. So for the story's sake, they had to start taking away. Honestly, that's what I think about Hedwig's death as well. It was like his last tie to childhood.
1: The author said that's what it was. She killed off Hedwig to kill off the last
0: piece of his childhood that remained. I think it had a lot to do with that for sure. We'll talk more about that when we get there, obviously. But this conversation that he's having with Nearly Headless Nick is only raising a whole bunch more questions about death, and Nick can't answer any of them. So Harry's just like, what the fuck, man? You're dead. If anybody would know about this, why is it not you? And Nick has to tell him, and this is why I think you're right, that he was just embarrassed, Nick has to tell him that he was afraid of death and chose this feeble imitation of life instead. So he's neither here nor there and doesn't know anything about the secrets of death. Because he chose to not go there. Yeah. So he doesn't know and he just is but isn't. And I think you're right. I think he's embarrassed by that. I think that if he could change that, he would.
1: This has very Voldemort vibes to me. I don't want to know what's on the other side of death, so let me never get there.
0: Well, I don't know that he didn't want to know. I think he was just scared. didn't want to go. Well,
1: Nick's death was very, very, very traumatic, so I understand that, but it rings similar back to Voldemort's I-don't-want-to-die dealio. Yeah. Not that he's like him at all. I'm just saying wizards seem to have a lot of ways
0: to not die. Nick brings up, the fact that he believes wizards study the matter of death at the Department of Mysteries, which could be what the arched room is for, perhaps. Harry's just like, don't talk about that place. And Nick just apologizes that he can't be more help and excuses himself to go to the feast because now he's extra late. And this just leaves Harry alone in that classroom, feeling like he just lost his dog father again.
1: I think that I really would have liked to see John Cleese do this because you don't get to see John Cleese be somber ever. And this is a very somber, touching moment.
0: Yeah. This is where we're cutting off the chapter. Kind of a long episode, a little bit longer than normal, but there was just a lot to talk about. And it works out pretty well with the movie section if we cut it out here because of where he goes next.
1: Since there are no movie scenes, we can go straight into our Potter pondering. So what do you think happened to Professor Umbridge when she was taken by the centaurs? Find the post on our Facebook page and share your thoughts or call us at 216-526-6792 and leave your response as a voicemail. If you choose to talk about a touchy subject, can you please say trigger or content warning? Also, make sure that you start off telling us your name and then go into your answer. Don't forget that you can also stitch a response on TikTok.
0: We really look forward to reading, hearing, and seeing them. So we don't have a Sorting Hat story, but we do have
1: a Wizarding Word. This week's Wizarding Word is that Bloomsbury Children's Books, Twinkle, and Warner Brothers Studio Tour in London, The Making of Harry Potter, have banded together for an extremely unique study session indeed, where teachers and students alike will get to tune in to a virtual lesson hosted by the Wizarding World's very own Ivana Lynch. So if you don't know, Ivana Lynch is the one that plays Luna Lovegood, and she is hosting this really cool creative writing, book-pumping event. She's working on this, and we are going to actually post the link so that you can find it. It will be happening on September 28th, which apparently is Harry Potter Book Day.
0: Yeah, it does sound really cool. If you do want us to read your Sorting Hat story, you can send it through social media or email it to us at forfoxsakepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your house, wand, Patronus, how you got into Harry Potter, and anything else you might want to share with us. We really look forward to reading them.
1: Now for this week's trivia question. Who is the Order member that initially speaks to the Dursleys about their treatment of Harry? The first one who responds with the correct answer and
0: the code word hashtag Dursley's Demented will get a sticker. Another way to get a sticker is to rate and review us through iTunes. If you don't have an Apple account, then you can write us a recommendation on our Facebook page. Make sure to email us at forfoxsakepodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com to let us know you did and we'll get back to you to figure out which sticker you want and where to send it.
1: Don't forget to find us and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, threads, and TikTok at Fox Sake Pod. Following us on Podbean at foxsakepod.podbean.com will get you the episode as early as possible and give you a leg up in answering the trivia question. You can also go to our website at forfoxsakepodcast.com to check out our For Fox Sake and Harry Potter-related merchandise for sale.
0: Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we post our weekly podcast episodes, cooking show episodes, vlogs, bloopers, and other random videos. We have a bit of a backlog on episodes. I did make some progress and I'm hoping to get the rest up this summer. If you would like to support us as a patron, you can sign up on
1: patreon.com slash foxsakepod. $2 and up a month will get you some awesome perks like, for foxsake swag, Access to our Discord channel,
0: chats, virtual hangouts. And, and join more. us next week when we talk about the very last part of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the second half of Chapter 38, The Second War Begins, and the somewhat corresponding film scenes.
1: Thanks for listening. Hope you hear us again. I'm Carly.
0: I'm Ellen. And we are For, for Fox's Sake. sake.